Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Peel's foe, not a set animal, laminates a tone of sleep. I'll say that again, Andy. Peel's foe, not a set animal, laminates a tone of sleep. So that backwards is exactly the same it's thing. Exactly it's exactly the same. It's a palindrome. It's a palindrome, and it uh, comes from Peter Blegvad from his album Q.Rone. Uh, and it's uh, the longest palindrome ever made, as far as I know. Very good. Very good. Isn't that so impressive? Andy Gill, welcome to the pod. Fraser's back from the South Seas, Hello. aren't you? Wow. Uh, rested and refreshed from uh, from the Rugby World Cup, of which more, na- uh, which more later. Yep. Mark Ellen's here, and we're going to settle the issue that was discussed on the uh, on the website this week about who had the longest hair in rock. Oh, right, that's been settled. More, still going on. More of that later. Yep. Uh, we're going to talk about groups reforming. But I, I wanted Andy, Andy Gill, to be here uh, this week, because... This is the week that the Beach Boys' smile is issued for the first time in its entirety, allegedly, uh, which Andy reviewed in the in the current issue of The Word. And Andy, a bit of a student of the Beach Boys, and I thought it was, it's it's a good subject. It's it's one of those things that hovers over pop music, isn't it? it the is. story of smile. Yeah. And so I thought this is a good opportunity to set it to rights, right? Okay. Yeah. So, Andy. Tell us the story of Smile, pretty much from the beginning. Well, the beginning, I suppose you have to start with Pet Sounds, and uh, where, where Brian's getting more and more um, sophisticated in his approach to music, much to the Beach Boys' chagrin. And, uh, and then he, uh, he goes and uh, becomes completely bonkers and does good vibrations. And, uh, Which took th- three months took, to record? Took something, estimates estimates three vary. Major uh, six studios, months. Yeah, six uh, four, four major studios. Four studios. Uh, at a cost. Sixteen grand, $16,000, am I right? $60,000, I 60. think it is. Which at the God. time was a fortune. It's, cra- it's a crazy amount of money to spend on. No, the, no, it was, 50, was 15000 just something on something to do with the theremin, wasn't it? Didn't he? He has a theremin probably. on it. And it wasn't the rental and, <laughs> uh, and uh, an operation of the theremin or the huge. Budget, and we're off the tangent here. No, 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 fascinating. But he—he was uh, oddly enough, he was never sure about whether it was successful until David Anderley, the uh, famous uh, Los Angeles scene maker and um, record company uh, functionary, who who was uh, 
worked with A&M, I, I believe, ran A&M at one point, ran Electra in, uh, in L.A. at one point, and he was the man that they got in to start running Brother Records a year before the Beatles started Apple. And um, he, he was never sure, Brian was never sure about Good Vibrations, whether it was successful or not, and, uh, and then David Andley heard it, and he was managing Danny Hutton, later of Three Dog Three Night. Three Dog Night. And, uh, and he thought, hmm, maybe I can get this for Danny. And so he called Brian and said, can I have this for Danny Hutton? Well, he wanted Danny Hutton to record yeah. the vibrations. Yes. And, well, uh, just start again and yeah, do it. Yeah, That's extraordinary. And Brian goes, hmm. Hmm, well, maybe it's not that, uh, you know, not that weird, and so that's what persuaded him to actually. So, so Brian Wilson, first of all, when he made Good Vibrations, thought this is too strange to release. Yeah, pretty be- much because all the Beach Boys were saying, "What's going on here?" Really? Right, but no, no, that, no, surely, surely uh, they, they, if I remember rightly, they're off touring, aren't they? they He's are, in the yeah. studio making these incredibly complicated symphonic recordings, <laughs> and when they come back, they, as you say, they, they're a lot of them. Very, very volubly appalled, aren't they? I mean, Mike, Mike Love doesn't Mike Love call it ego music? Well, your ego music, yeah, yeah your, your ego music. And so yeah. it must be really odd because they're off there playing the old simple songs on European tours, and they come back, and there's this absolutely extraordinary thing, all recorded apart from the vocal parts, which yeah. he's expecting them to record, which in themselves are immensely complicated. Which they yeah. did, though. which they did, which they, they did, did. Yeah. and they did them beautifully, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and there are apparently extant recordings that we're with uh, with Brian doing all the vocal parts. But then he goes and gives the, the lead part to Carl again, which, uh, which he'd done with God, God Only Knows. So Good Vibrations is eventually released and is a huge hit, a huge certainly hit. In, in Europe. Yeah. Was it a huge hit in the States? Uh, yeah, it was a big hit in the States. It sold, uh, in America, it sold 100,000 sales every day for the first week, which was big in those days. And it, it and in those days, records didn't go straight to number one. They, they, no, no. they crept up, yeah, absolutely. It, but it became number one by Christmas. I can remember, sorry, tangent again. Yeah. I can remember this record coming out in, the, in Britain. And I was living in Yorkshire and I was at school and I was happened to be homesick with a cold for a few days or flu, man flu, boy man flu. flu. Boy yeah. flu. Uh, and this is in the days of pirate radio. And I can't remember what the station was that, that we could pick up there. It was something that came out of the North Sea, identified mm-hmm. by a number, I think. And they played this record literally three times an hour when it came out. And on, on this crackly transistor, that you pretty much had to hold at a certain angle at the window to get a signal. And, and it, I can remember it now, the, kind of the chills of hearing that record. Well, there'd never been anything, like, anything like it. Yeah. And, uh, and, and every time you got to hear it, you slowly built up more and more of a, a picture of it in your head. And so you could, you could kind of last the 20 minutes until the next play by playing it in your head. Completely. And it still has that effect oh, on me now, yeah. you know, 40 years later yeah. or whatever. The thing is, that what made it so different was that Brian had discovered this new means of recording or new method of recording, which is the modular process, whereby you get... You know, separate modules of of sound, which if you listen to the smile sessions, you've got a whole CD of these little modules for good vibrations, and you've got another CD of the little modules for heroes and villains. What are what, what are the, well, the, these the modules? You'd be he'd be working on uh, one one little bit of of the music, and then he'd get an idea for something else. And everybody that's worked with him says you've got you know the thing about Brian is. He's, he's got to have it done, done instantly. If he, if he 
if he has to wait for to get something, if he has to wait to book a studio or something, it just it goes. The idea it's goes, got to be done yeah. instantly and so on. And so he'd instantly move from what he's working on to this new piece, and then there'd be another piece and so on, and, and he'd record Which all might not finish up in that song. Might not be in the same... Uh, God, well, can it, you imagine that? And he's got to get the smoke in the bottle. Yeah, yeah. And, it, and if you listen to the... If you look at these, or, or listen to these CDs, there's like 30, 40 pieces of, and so on, and it's... so. It, takes him all this time, took him six months to a year, to edit down and finally come up with a mix for Good Vibrations, which, when we hear it for the first time, it's like nothing we've ever heard before, because it's jumping around all over the place. It's got, Different oh, it's suddenly into this together. bit, and then suddenly everything Different drops out, and it's just this humming noise, and, and so on. And, the, and, uh, and we think, wow, that's the strangest thing I've ever heard. And then after that, it becomes quite normal. Nowadays we hear it and we think that's great, that's good vibrations. But but, but isn't it a case that we've heard it millions of millions times? Millions of times, yeah. exactly. And therefore it's formed itself in our exactly, head. Exactly, that's what I mean, yeah. Into something uh, that it wasn't at the first exactly. point. Exactly, so, so it's sort of like this, this new principle. When he comes to do heroes and villains, it takes him even longer because there's even more bits and they keep going off on these weird tangents and he's working with Van Dyke Parts. Yes, I'm going to say, so tell us about yeah. Van Dyke Parts because Van Dyke Parts, who, who sat where you're sitting now in the pod not not long ago, was visitor to this this podcast, never to be forgotten. Uh, that was a key meeting, wasn't it, Brian Wilson and Van Dyke Parts? Absolutely, and do you know where that first meeting took place? Go on. Yeah, go on. It took place at Terry Melcher's house. Oh, yeah. Doris Day's son. Doris Day's son, uh, and the location uh, shortly afterwards of the Sharon Tate murder. Of the murders. Oh, God, the Manson right. family murder. Yeah. And they, they met on the lawn of that, uh, of that very mansion. Uh, and they were introduced by David Anderley, apparently, according to uh, one account. But, but uh, he, Brian was immediately impressed by, uh, by Van Dyke's way with words. <laughs> as anybody would be. As, you would as be. anybody would Now, be. tell us the story of... They fell out over the recording of Cabin Essence. I think. Am I right or not? There was one particular song where he had written a line that Brian couldn't understand (laughs) and he asked him to explain it Um, and he refused to explain it. No, there were lines in, in, uh, I think the the big break, it was on Surf's Up. Oh, right. And it was Mike Love. And and Van Dyke gets a call and... Brian's in the studio and Mike Love's there and they've obviously come back off tour again. Yeah. <laughs> and they've found, you know, dove-nested towers, the owls would strike the straight quicksilver moon, carriage across the fog to step the lamp like fella tune. <laughs> it's, the not exactly, uh, it's not exactly round, round, get around, I get around. It's not, it's, Ronda, and, it's, not, yeah. it's not a little Honda. And, and, <laughs> and apparently Mike Love had come to the line... Columnated ruins domino. Columnated yeah. ruins domino. Oh, here he goes. It's good. And uh, and uh, he, he and he said to Brian, "What's what's going on here?" And Brian was obviously in such a state that he just thought, "I can't be bothered to argue this." And anyway, I don't know what's going on. Yeah, with these I ruins. didn't write it. Yeah. And so they call Van Dyke up, and Van Dyke has to come down to the studio. And and Mike Love's like, "So, what do you mean by this?" And Van Dyke apparently refused to explain. He says, "It's it's what it is," you know. Because he didn't know how to. Well, possibly. It. Although you know, you can. It's quite you know an elusive, interesting image. You know, columnated room. It's about you know the fall of empires. Right, right. You know, kind of a domino. Yeah, but also the best possible pop looks don't have an absolute answer. Exactly. Do they? If you don't yeah. have a little bit of manoeuvre for for the mystery, there's not much point in writing them. You know. Exactly. But, but, but Brian was basically so impressed by Van Dyke because he. He, he could just words just came out of him, whereas Brian had never really written words, had he? Brian was not a word man, and uh, and that's part of the the uh, the problem with Smile was that 
when he and Van Dyke sort of fell out, he was left with this album, which had several tracks done in this very ornate Rococo kind of uh, uh, imagery. <laughs> and then, then bits that were just la, la, and la. Bits, yeah. and, and, and the whole, yeah. Phil. Exactly. Phil. Phil. June. Yeah. <laughs> and, well, a whole load of Kissing tracks. Missing. A whole load yeah. of tracks, frankly, which were just backing tracks. Right. And still awaiting lyrics right. in, in many cases. And, and they just end up as these bits of what are effectively incidental music now. And but but there are, he's aware when he's working on it that he's doing something that's massively ambitious and that, that nobody has ever gone where he's gone before. Absolutely, and it's yeah. very interesting, the point you make about good vibrations, which I'd never thought about before, that when he made it, he thought, this is strange. He yeah. didn't think, this is the big sound that's going to change the world. <laughs> yeah. you know? And that must be a major adjustment. When yeah. you've done something you think is really experimental, it turns out really popular. And it, and it yeah. turned out to be popular, which strengthens <laughs> his resolve to be even stranger. Yes. Yeah, that's the best. But he, he must have been worrying all the time about whether it was going to be the right thing or not. He had I, nothing to measure it, I guess. Absolutely, I'm, I'm sure he was. But he, he also, at that point, started to have this retinue of, of friends around him. And like, like all pop stars do, they're saying, that's great. Yes, go that's further. Fantastic. Yes, yeah, that's oh, so you're really on the so money. <laughs> <laughs> and so on. And, and there was also a documentary made uh, at that time, which was uh, hosted by Leonard Bernstein, uh, which, in which, uh, from which comes the, uh, the famous uh, footage of Brian at the piano alone doing Surf's Up. And, uh, and basically, it, Leonard Bernstein didn't actually say he was a genius, but he kind of inferred that there was some, you know, there was some... And so some, some, some PR man thought, yeah. genius, genius, Bernstein... Yeah. And so, and so, and this became a kind of like uh, you know the bestowal of. of so, in a very short period of time, he suddenly shot into this position that he, he never particularly sought, isn't no, he? No. You know, he's been a kind of really good songwriter for a really good group, and suddenly he's kind of he's an artist, isn't exactly, he? Exactly, exactly that. And Which so, must have been terrifying. And so he's wanting to make a teenage symphony to God, as he calls. Dumb Angel, which was the original title for Smile. So that was the original name for it. Dumb Angel. Dumb Angel. That's Dumb extraordinary. Angel. Yeah. And so while he's making this record, I was looking. I was actually looking at this book called Beach Boys FAQ, All That's Left to Know About America's Band by John Stebbins, which came out, comes out right now, I think, and brings together loads of the folklore about Beach Boys. And I was reading this last night, and I'd never fully been st- struck by the 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 um, the relationship between this and what the Beatles were doing. And so he's yeah. halfway through this in 66, 67, isn't he? Absolutely. It's the winter of 66. Yeah. And in the February, it's all going well, and then the Beatles put out <laughs> Strawberry Fields it's Forever fun. and Penny Lane. And he must have thought, oh, my But it goes right back to the story and, and then, then they put out Sergeant Pepper. Well, in yeah. the summer. And that's the capper. He yeah, just thinks, oh, it's, 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 it's a combination of the two, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. No, because he's aware that, that he's doing something experimental and strange. Mm-hmm. But the Beatles, in the middle of it, dropped something experimental and strange that's also massively commercial. You know, the first time you hear those records, Strawberry Fields and Penny Lane, they don't sound strange. No. But this they just they just got so much punch to them. Yeah. Rubber Soul's where it starts, I'm pretty sure. Rubber Soul's he where hears it Rubber Soul, and he says that... Rubber, what's amazing about Rubber Soul's, I think it's the first Beatles record without a, uh, a non-Beatles composition on it. I think it's all written by the Beatles. Yeah, yeah. Uh, apologies if I've got that wrong. Hard Day's uh, Night, actually, the, is the viewers. But anyway, <laughs> it's what he said was no filler. He said yeah. that he'd grown up in a, in a business model that was few singles, loads of filler. It was, yeah. understand, that was understood the way they did it. 
and he didn't think there was any filler on rubber sole. So he yeah. thought, right, OK, I see your rubber sole, I raise you this. Pet Sounds. So Pet Sounds comes out with absolutely no filler on it. And then, as you say, then we get into this cycle of... And also, it's so fascinating that the, the way the two acts are, are working is so completely different, because... He's up against this collaborative unit of the Beatles, exactly. which is this so is... interesting. Not only are they collaborative, one of them comes and says, I've written this song, the others then, the co-writer, if they have one, helps write it, and then the four of them bolt it together. Mm. He is not only using, probably, was it the Wrecking Crew? I yes, he was yeah, using the, the Wrecking, the wrecking Crew, crew, crew to play yeah. all the instruments. He's using himself to dub in the demo uh, guide vocal tracks, and then he's having to use his own vocalists who are off in Europe, you know, passing the hat around, <laughs> still playing Barbara Ann, to come back and finish it off. So it's just a complete completely different yeah. way of working. And he can't compete. Of course, the beat is so compete. much faster. And oh, well, there's more of them. And there's, there are, there are, more of even, them. Even if you look at... You know, even if we accept that Ringo's not the most creative musician in the world, George Martin is a creative Completely. musician. Completely. And there's Completely. three other Beatles who are pretty damn creative as well. And So the time Sergeant so, Pepper came so out, I, I remember there was a whole, whole story saying, do you realise they've spent 200 hours in the studio making this record or whatever it uh, was, 500? It's the kind of thing... George Michael spends 200 hours doing a B-side nowadays. Yeah. You know? Whereas at the time, it seemed an immense it seemed amount of time. extraordinary It was nothing time. compared to the time that Brian Wilson had been spending yeah. at the same yeah. time. And also, he was doing it on his own and... The people in his band with him were giving him grief about it. Yes. There was no kind of support for him. There was no encouragement. So he was constantly fighting this tide of, uh, on his own, swimming upstream, whereas the Beatles were all kind of like coasting down a water slide yeah, yeah, yeah. together. So were the Beatles, uh, how much were they aware of that? Because there was a story. They, they, well, Van, Van, Van Dyke to- Park told me, didn't he? they? Didn't, he, they, didn't the Beatles get played? No, he was in the studio, that's right. Derek Taylor when played it. I think. Derek Taylor played the Beatles' Sergeant Pepper to Brian. Gosh, I can't remember what he said now because it's a long time since we did that podcast. But that's an extraordinary moment. And this is obviously has a very destabilizing effect. Probably a deliberate ruse yeah. on Derek's part. Yeah. But then, so does that make? Here's my question to you: Does that make back in the USSR opening track of uh, of the White Album a cruel twist by McCartney, or just an affectionate? I thought we were still playing this game of tennis because that's that's a an absolutely. If in the light of all this, that was a pretty mean thing to do. Which is not only are we better, but we can be the Beach Boys. We can actually be yeah. you. Maybe, yeah, maybe. I think, I think it was probably kind of like he thought, that, oh, friendly rivalry. Yeah. <laughs> Thumbs aloft. Thumbs aloft to you. <laughs> friendly Derek, rivalry. Doesn't Derek, doesn't Derek Taylor, and we're here we're talking about, the, you know, the late great Derek Taylor was the Beatles and the Birds and all sorts of people's PR man and was probably the first great kind of PR man yeah. in rock. Uh, he has a key part in this, doesn't he? Because he knew all about the Beach Boys camp. And wasn't he the guy who said in print, Brian Wilson cannot finish Smile? I think he, I think he yeah. actually sells, says this. And so he goes into the public domain that, that he, can't, he, he can't actually come to an end of it. You may, you may be right, because I know Derek, Derek Taylor was instrumental in the Brian is a genius uh, thing as well. Um, well. That was probably a brilliant piece of PR on his part, realising what catastrophe was round the corner. I mean, at that point, Brian has completely unravelled as a human yeah. being. We can yeah. say that, can't we? Yeah. And, um, you know, goes on later to, to be entirely supported and taken over by the evil doctor. 
<laughs> which we probably won't get well, on to in this podcast. He doesn't believe in the evil doctor. Oh, you don't believe what? No, I you met won't. Dr. Landy. <laughs> I interviewed Dr. Landy. Did you? I got on really well with Dr. Landy, yeah. He, he was. He's he was... brainwashed you, Andy. <laughs> <laughs> you taking the meds. No, doctor, it's great. <laughs> <laughs> no, he was, he was fine. I, I asked him about it because at the time he was. It was when Brian's solo album came out. I, I remember, which I, I think uh, you, Dr. <laughs> Eugene Landy we're talking about here is yeah. the, the um, kind of psychotherapist uh, who, who took over Brian's life, really. And obviously, on one level, uh, helped him lose weight and get off drugs, but on another level, appeared to exert an enormous amount of control of his own life to the extent that he is, in fact, listed as the co-producer and this, co-author. This of was his problem. He, he, he got, uh, I think he got struck off by the California Psychiatric Association or whatever professional body. That just, can't be a good thing. No, you're because, best mate, you're a pal, huge. Yeah, no, <laughs> because he, he, was, he was acting as, his, uh, as Brian's psychotherapist, his uh, manager, his co-producer, his co-writer, and they said, I'm sorry, this is multiple capacity, you can't do this. It's Illegal. Seems fair. It, it seems it fair, yeah. And, and I, asked, I asked the doctor about this, and he said, he said, my only problem, he says, is that I was successful. He said, if, I, if I'd been unsuccessful, like any of the other 32 shrinks that the family got in to try and sort Brian out, then, if, you know, if I'd been that unsuccessful, Brian would be dead, and I wouldn't have this problem. So is that all I, all, my problem is that I was successful, and I managed point. to get Brian productive again, and that's when my problem started. And I thought... <laughs> That is a reasonable, a reasonable point. point. Brian Wilson is an extraordinary figure, isn't he? In that he is, he's ended up being, and, and, you know, without being too kind of harsh about it, the meal ticket for more people in popular music than anybody else, than any other single individual. Yeah. And yet he's, he's clearly not being fitted for this. No. He's uh, not robust enough did you for that. Uh, did you by well. any chance see uh, the recent uh, live shows, the Gershwin show? I, I didn't see the recent ones. I saw the ones about seven or eight years ago. I, mean, I saw I, the I, Smile show and the... Yeah. yeah. But, I mean, it's the same kind of thing, except the Gershwin thing, I think, is rubbish. But, uh, but you know, you see him live and he's clearly unhappy. He clearly hates being there and he does this kind of, like, tic-tac man... Uh, stuff with his hands. He's sitting behind his keyboard and he's doing his and reads his, his spontaneous ad libs yeah. off an auto cue. Exactly. I'm afraid to say. I'm uh, sure anyone just, will know that. He just seems so unhappy. To yeah, be there. I agree. He says that that the, he really likes touring. He likes being in the airports. He likes being in the hotels. He doesn't like playing. It's the, yeah. it's the reverse of what everyone says. The cliche is it's worth it for the ninety minutes. I thought that was really poignant. Yeah, very you know, poignant. That yeah. he doesn't like yeah. the pressure of being on the stage. But he probably you know, likes, the, never he likes the security and the structure of a life where people are running around making sure he's got some breakfast. Exactly. You know, which is, you know, and he's costing a hotel. So yeah. you know, yeah. th- this is a guy who starts off being kind of the meal ticket and 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 kind of important outlet for the aspirations of his very tough father, Murray. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. You know, then moves on to being the meal ticket for his brothers. Who are and and wider family, yeah. and now as a meal ticket for a, you know loads of people in the kind of reissue industry and the heritage industry and all the fans and everybody sort of wants him to be something and, and the meal ticket for the Wonderments surely yeah. I mean that was that's the irony that he formed a touring group made up of am I right the Wonderments who were in fact others, a, yeah. a Beach Boys tribute act <laughs> they were a Beach Boys tribute act in in need of a lead singer he was the lead singer or one of the lead yeah. singers of the Beach Boys in need of a band it's the ultimate 
isn't it, for a, yeah. for a, for a oh, tribute Unbelievable. Yeah. It's like the bootleg Beatles getting Paul McCartney it's to join them, isn't it? <laughs> exactly and that. I'm not yeah. sure if remember the jam didn't actually do this at one point, but anyway, go on. Didn't the Stone Roses do something? Ian Brown actually went, there was a kind of a Stone Roses Oh, we talk more about tribute, Stone Roses. In, oh, yeah, we'll get on to and, that. And Ian Brown actually played with them. Didn't, yeah. Who was yeah. it? Was it Genesis or somebody hired somebody from a singer? Meridian. Yes, have done it, and Judas Priest have done it. Yes, and Judas Priest both hired a singer from a tribute band because they were the best person. Yeah, I think one of the important things about Brian is that I've got a bootleg of the the hamburger songs, which come from slightly later when he was, you know, Dennis was trying to get Brian out of bed where he'd been for three years, and he'd uh, he'd lure him by by hamburgers. It's sort of like like a dog. If, if he could get Brian to the to the piano and he'd knock out a tune, he'd get a Dennis pound would of give him cheese. a hamburger. Yeah. Oh. And and so Brian would come out and he'd knock out these things and it's just it's really tragic. But the album is called Adult Child, oh, and that's basically Lord. what Brian Wilson is. And and at that at that time that we're talking of in his Laurel Way home, he, he, of course he had the the famous the sandbox with the grand piano in it, where the dog used to take its dumps, and, uh, and Van Dyke refused to set foot in it. Quite and right, at the same time, he, he had the uh, the tree house installed in his in yes. the hallway of his home yeah. so that anybody entering the house had to crawl through the tree house. Effectively, they had to infantilise themselves Michael Jackson to enter his, his world. Time. Exactly. Yeah. It's that same thing. Going and back so, to the age uh, of six. There's, a, there's um, a David Anderley at, uh, at this time said, you know, Brian's trip was like like living Disneyland, which again is... Michael Jackson ahead of time. So they had to go through the treehouse in order in the That's hallway. That's a brilliant in order psychological to... device. Exactly. Isn't it? I yeah. never knew that. Yeah. Fascinating. So it, what do you think of this box set then now, Andy? This, I, this thing I has just it... come out the smile. This is the full smile with all the every bit, yeah. isn't it? I thought I was going to love it because you know I'm a bit of a Brian nut and and I you know I wanted to hear this stuff. But then when you do actually hear it, it's. It's like an autopsy. It's just, you hear these songs and you just, after a while you just think, I don't want to hear any more of this. I don't want to hear this bit of session here. And, and you can tell... So it's got all the bits that went into the making and so it up. And bits of studio chatter and so on. And you can hear that the musicians who are, who are there and they're normally getting you know three, three tracks done in a session and they can go away and say on their CV, hey, I played on Hang On Sloopy or whatever, you know. Yeah. Here... They're, they're being asked to go over and over, like 50 takes, of this tiny fragment of music. They wouldn't want to do that. No, they wouldn't the want to do that. Hal Blaine, and, and Blaine can, Campbell wouldn't want to do and that. And you can virtually but, hear uh, that how, how lacklustre their performing is becoming. Because, yeah, they're 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 used to working against the clock, aren't they? Yeah. They, they have an, that's yeah. an extraordinary thing, which you can see in that wonderful documentary, The Wrecking Crew. You know, yeah. These were guys who could just raise their game exactly. when somebody said, you've got ten minutes to do this. Yeah. And being given endless time was a, was a real imposition on these guys. They didn't yeah. want yeah, that. Yeah, they didn't want that. And, and they, they could be off doing getting, something, making more money somewhere else. Yeah, they've got the same money, they just... Yeah. get bored. Yeah, anyway. they get bored and they'd leave the session thinking, what did we achieve? And, and they, uh, they, they also probably aren't able to work out what it is they're doing wrong. They, they, can't, yeah. they can't figure out in his head what, 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 what he's after. And yeah. They're just, just giving him various versions. And, there's a, the, you know, and, the, and the vocals, there's, there's one bit in the, uh, in the vocals where they're doing Our Prayer, the, uh, you know, the intro track to it, and it's a very nice piece of uh, stuff. And this is the actual The Boys themselves. And, uh, and the, when the engineer calls out at one point, Take 60. <laughs> and you just think, how, how the hell are they even managing to make a sound if, yep. if they're on the 60th take? Let alone the, have these pristine harmonies. Yep, yep. And, and one of them, probably Mike, says, 
why on earth are we wasting, Mike, you know, very money conscious, why on earth are we wasting all this tape? Let's just wipe the, the previous 59 takes, if they're not good enough, and re-record over it. Because tape in those days cost a yeah, lot yeah, of absolutely. money. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and, he's, and, I, and I came away thinking, well, you know, I, uh, big respect to the Beach Boys for being able to do that after 60 yeah, takes. Yeah, the discipline. Yeah, absolutely. Discipline. What worries me here is that, is that, and these are just all the component parts of the, of the, the machine, unassembled, aren't they? But if Andy yeah. Gill, world's leading expert in the <laughs> Beach Boys Obsessive, finds it a bit boring, then who, who is this record but is, for? Has it, has it got on this, on this collection, has it got a definitive version? It does. This is so a, you this can is the, listen to the thing That's itself. the saving grace of it. They've got the, the, you know, the ultimate definitive mix and that's what starts the thing. And you, so you hear this definitive mix, and it all sounds fantastic and bright and, and so on. And you think, oh, that's OK. And then it all just starts disassembling and falling didn't, apart I, on you. And you I, start realising that, uh, hang on, the, this track that they're doing over and over again, it's just a little bit of nothing, really, on the album. And you start realising that he's trying to inflate all these tracks to the level of good vibrations and eras and villains, yeah. and he's never going and to finish it. And he's kind of it. hoping it's going to magically happen, isn't yeah, he? Yeah, Because and he doesn't really know how to make it happen himself. No, and, and so he's recording all these little modules for each track, yeah. and, oh, and it's just... Uh, you can imagine. Didn't he do a record once with George Martin, or, or an experimental thing, where they've got, got two tracks, they went back to the master and remixed a version from the master of some of the songs he'd done? Oh, I don't know. No, 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 I'm no. not sure. Don't be surprised. And how, how does it differ from the Wonderment version that came out a few years ago? Well, it's got the Beach Boys singing on it. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> but but it in terms of the arrangements? The it? arrangements, uh, they, they are... They're not uh, ersatz in, in the way that, you know, the Wonderment versions have to be ersatz because, you know, they're not... They're played with the, with the, the post-knowledge yes. of, of, of hearing these, these things for we, years and yeah. years. Yes. Whereas the guys really that were actually playing yeah, them back in '66 were having to, to, you know, figure out what Brian was talking no, about. Good point. And, and Best so quote on is... the '60s I ever got. I interviewed Bill Graham years ago, oh, yeah. and he said, "The thing about the '60s you have to understand is we were out there with no compass. Compass, no compass, no maps." It's yeah. a really good point. Yeah. This is, uh, this is what, uh, they didn't know what the '60s were. They were yeah. living through them. Yeah. You know. and, and this is what uh, it's the same thing that the, the Floyd said about Sid Barrett. David Anderley says about Brian, you know, clearly, in retrospect, Brian was mentally ill. But he says at that time, you know, everybody was whimsical and had <laughs> they just thought, yeah, weird ideas. Just thought he was even and so when he weird. said, you know, when they're sitting down at dinner and everybody's, and he gets everybody tapping their plates in different rhythms, going, this is great, let's make an album of this. You know, everybody just thought, hey, this is Brian He's being... He's as stone as we are. Exactly. Yeah. The thing I want to just, just t touch on here, which interested me in looking at this book, is that it strikes me there's two, there's two Beach Boys careers. There's the actual one that took place largely in the 60s and very early 70s. You were talking earlier, but you saw them in yeah, 1972 when I was a teenager. And I, I, I was not old enough and aware enough really to know that Brian probably wasn't in the group that I saw. But you said they were living is, in Holland. This is when they're living in Holland. They were actually living in Holland. You, <laughs> you know, they, they had a new manager. Was it Jack Riley? I think it was something like that. Yeah. Who suggested, God knows why, there must have been t some tax reason or whatever. Yes, probably. Let's relocate. Let's start the, the whole, whole thing again. of this Reset the really clock. complicated. You know, Southern Californian soap opera, all yeah. the family, all the you know, wives, children, whatever, let's move to Holland. It started really well. They made let's Sail on Sailor. Let's build a studio in a barge or something, I yeah. don't know. Yeah. And, and let's, uh, let's make Holland. Now, apparently, when they first make Holland, made Holland, it didn't have Sail on Sailor on it. 
Ceylon Sailor was something they got that they they made earlier. He did with Van Dyke Parks earlier on, I think. Um, But but anyway, it's an extraordinary idea that that they were that they relocated to Europe for about a year or something like that. Well, I'm sure somebody probably came in and said, "Let's just start this whole thing. We need a clean sheet of paper, don't we? Because it had gotten such a terrible mess." But so, but the the point I was going to make was that that was the real career, and then there was the second career, and the second career I think was started by. Three things. One was a big feature, probably a two-part feature in Rolling Stone magazine, which I think was called The Beach Boys of California Saga or something, which I remember, remember reading this, which opened with a photograph of Brian Wilson in his dressing gown in the middle of the night in his vegetarian um, deli yeah. that he'd opened called The Radiant Radish. <laughs> The Radiant Radish. And and he he just proceeded to say, "Okay, here we are in the Radiant Radish. Here's Brian. Wow, he's strange, isn't he? Now let's go back and tell the whole extraordinary saga of of the Beach Boys. Not as a story of happiness, which is how we remember it from the first time. But it's a very melancholy, rather sad story mm. of dysfunctional family Absolutely. and everything's very yeah, bittersweet. Totally. And the then not down, long right? afterwards, Nick Kent Nick wrote Kent's a big piece in the anime, probably similarly two-part, two yeah. Yeah, was. Which, was, which was pretty much the same kind of thing. Yeah. And then the other thing was the release of the, the first of those massive compilations, Endless Summer. Endless Summer. In, in the States. America as well. Where suddenly this stuff is sold for the first time as nostalgia. It's kind of gone. But wouldn't you like to be 15 again and listen to Surfing USA yeah. and I Get Around and all that kind of stuff? And so ever since you've had this bunch of ageing men, and we're all ageing men, you know, mm. desperately trying to recapture for the benefit of their audience something from 1965, 1966. And the second career has been way longer than the first yeah. one. Yeah. yeah, Something that they were only tangentially attached to anyway, weren't they? That, that a whole... Uh, no, if I can ask Andy this and see, it, it, I always understood that the name of the group was the Pendletones. It started off as the Pendletones. They were it was based on a shirt, the shirt called the Candy Stripe shirt. Candy Stripe shirt, and they were called. I think they called the Pendletones. And their first recording, I think, was a song called Surf or Surfing. And when it came back from the record company, they opened the boxes to discover the sleeves. Build them as a group called the Beach Boys. Oh, they never heard that before. Which I think Murray had invented. I, oh, right. I don't <laughs> think they knew anything about that. Yeah, and, I think and therefore they were now lumbered with the time. Uh, they said, "We're the Pendletones." And he said, "No, no, this is a surfing song. This whole surfing thing's really happening. <laughs> At least one of you surfed. I think Dennis was a Dennis surfer. Was you are the Beach Boys." So from the very beginning, from literally day one, they're in that. He Brian is in that tangle of this. What is control? You know, it's quite yeah. interesting. I yeah. think. And so, it's so, quite so, serious. So now there are a bunch of you know the survivors. Are a bunch of guys in what their late sixties, yeah, 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 if not probably the seventies. My yeah. love, I don't know. Still, the Beach Boys from the beach, not even the Beach Men. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they are still the Beach Boys. Yeah. And they've still got this thing hanging around their neck, you know, oh, yeah. and, uh, oh, yeah. and no yeah. doubt they're kind of descendants yeah. and so yeah. forth, you know. And everybody's benefiting from it. I'll tell you another thing I found in this book, Beach Boys FAQ, which <laughs> seems to me a fantastic emblem of how everything Beach Boys gets mythologised. Tony Asher, who was the lyricist who worked with Brian Wilson before Van Dyke Parks, who wrote loads of stuff, co-wrote loads of stuff on Pet Sounds and stuff, and was an advertising man, I think he was. You know, he was an advertising copywriter. He was no great mystic or anything like this. 
and uh, and the tune he wrote that the, the the Brian was working on a tune, and uh, and Asher came up with these lyrics. Uh, about an old girlfriend of his called Carol. Uh, and the refrain was, oh, Carol, I know. And, and Brian's wife is called Caroline, heard, heard some demo of this and thought, oh, how sweet, how darling, sweet. you written a song oh, about me. Oh, you shouldn't have. I didn't. <laughs> and, so, <laughs> and so, Brian, you know, no, no man alive would deny that. Absolutely. They go, yes, darling. Did the right thing. Yes, oh, you've yeah. got my secret. Yeah. And so ever since, this thing is, is known as Caroline No, even though it started as, as Caroline No. Brilliant. Extraordinary. Yeah. That's brilliant. I also, so, go on. I was just going to say, uh, the thing to remember about Brian is that, you know, he was on the treadmill from... A teen, being a teenager, yeah. They, yeah. They, Capital had him cranking out up to three albums a year, and that's writing, producing, arranging, the whole lot. He, he basically lived in the studio and became a you know like he had that studio tam going on, I guess from from the time he was about eighteen or nineteen, and they just kept him on that treadmill. But now he's on another kind of treadmill. Now he's on another kind of treadmill. He's the most, I, I did ask him once. I said, uh, you know, didn't you feel that that they were kind of like taking advantage of you and he, and he said oh no no I, I really like it because I really followed home in the studio that's a very good impersonation by the way I met much. him yeah <laughs> and uh, <laughs> slightly surprised or yeah. you know, frightened frightened get Andy Gill with the wonder mints and see what we can, <laughs> see what we can yeah. come up with but another thing that, uh, another thing about uh, um, Smile is that it was meant to be a kind of an American Gothic type thing because both he and Van Dyke were interested in American history, which is why you get all that kind of old cowpoke music coming in every now and then. And they really wanted it to reflect this American Gothic history thing. And and I just wonder what he must have felt like when he when he heard the band's second album. Yes, oh, Where, which comes along and there it is, and and it's not got these pristine harmonies at all. It's got these whiskery old yeah. weather-beaten harmonies, and this music that sounds because basically the band were guys who lived that music. They yeah. lived all that R and B and that country and all those weird, weird old musics in a way which the Wrecking Crew and you know and Brian and Van Dyke for them it was it was a, a dilettante. Exercise. Well, they were Californians. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. so I, th- I think, you know, if, if and when he heard the, you know, the band second album, he must have thought, oh, they've done it. They've, they've Is there done, a greater Greek it. tragedy than, than the Beach Boys? I give you, in, in, in hopefully under, uh, under half a minute, Go on. The, the, the death of Dennis. Dennis, oh. let me just say very quickly, oh. Dennis Wilson, who died at the age of 38, was married three times. He married his second wife twice in two years... Already we're getting into the realms of confusion that I can't possibly understand. His third wife was, unless I'm entirely mistaken, Andy, the illegitimate child of his cousin Mike Love. Mike Love, yeah. Yeah, that's going to go down really well at Christmas dinner, isn't it, right? <laughs> a little bit more turkey and blueberry glaze. Oh, you're not here, because you weren't invited. <laughs> anyway, he's on the yacht in Marina del Rey, which he had with his third wife, the illegitimate child, etc. They've had a domestic. He remembers, he's full of drugs and drink, he remembers that this is the spot at this anchorage where he had a row with his second wife, which ended with him hurling at her the framed photograph of the two of them at their wedding. And he dives it, in. It smashes, it goes to the water, and because at the same anchor, he thinks, it must be down there. That's the I'm girl I love. Find what it. am I doing with this? He dives in, you're absolutely right, brimful of drugs and drink, he, t- he uh, arrives out of the water holding, like Excalibur, <laughs> the broken frame, 
right, fails to get it back onto the boat, is seen underwater, swimming frantically, and never seen again. Never seen again. Isn't that the most extraordinary story? And that is just one member of this... Unbelievable. It, in a way, it's extraordinary they never found the body because Marina del Rey is a kind of a closed in yeah. harbour. Yeah. Uh, it's a, a closed in anchorage. Oh, really? Yeah, I don't they think never they found did. the body. I don't think it did. So oh, my goodness. Somewhere down there in Marina del Rey is, is Dennis. Because it's unlikely. I'm that surprised nobody's come up with a conspiracy sort of theory that he's that he's that actually living resurfaced. In. Because, know. of course, there is the, the whole Dennis Wilson, Charles Manson story. Yeah. Where Charles Manson turns upon. Uh, well, Dennis comes home one day. With two girl hitchhikers. With right? two girl hitchhikers. Yeah, right. yeah, Fine yeah. judge of character, Dennis. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and he has a great time with these two girl hitchhikers on board. <laughs> and then, yeah. and then a short while after, these two girl hitchhikers come back with their mates. How many was it? So 16 or something, something like that? They've also got 16 something friends. Like 20, and they 20 just live people. in his house. And they're in his house, and one of them is this guy, Charlie, who's got this really weird stare. And, uh, and, and first of all, you know, Dennis is, uh, yeah, well, he's quite up for the group sex type of thing and, you know, <laughs> and all the drugs and so on. Yeah, he'll do that. Then, uh, and this guy, Charlie, seems quite interesting and charismatic and he writes songs as well. He and, gets in with and he starts, or something, doesn't he? he gets yeah, he, and he, demo. exactly. And he, and he, <clears throat> Dennis introduces him to Terry Melcher and so on. And, and it's this, Terry Melcher's house. It's it? Terry Melcher that they were going after when they got Sharon Tate, but he'd sold the house on to, to Roman Polanski and Sharon Tate by that time. But Dennis is, is uh, <laughs> just freaks Dennis out eventually. He leaves his own house. Eventually. Yeah. Eventually, and has to get, you know, presumably bailiffs or someone to come and get the family out of the, the Mansons. And, um, but later on, there's a song called, I think it's called, is it Learn Not... Never to, Learn Not to Love. Never Learn oh, Not to Love. which is a, Charles Manson... Which Charles Manson wrote, but never got any credit for. It had, it had another it's name, actually, when he wrote it, and they changed the name. They changed the name. Never Learn Not to Love. Yeah. It was called something else, I can't remember what name. And, and this incensed... Something like that? Ceased that to exist, it was yes. called. Yes, yeah, ceased to exist. And they changed it to Never Never Learn Not to Love. Ten points to Mr Lurie Incensed. Incensed Charlie Manson. And... But by that time, I guess, he was in jail. So <laughs> The weather's yeah, hit as a risk. The other thing I found uh, th- this week, which I've never seen before, and I will post it on the site along with this podcast, is Mike Love's extraordinary speech at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame investiture in, I think, 2004, um, where the Beach Boys are invested into the Academy or whatever by Elton John. And somehow Brian, uh, Mike Love gets on stage... Wearing a kind of the traditional baseball Turn. clap. No, no, oh, right. yeah, 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 no worry. It was a stage. was starting to go a bit. He put a turban on. I, I thought the turban was a good look. Hairy face. It was a good look. I thought Mike Love. He used to, want to follow the progress of Mike Love's hair. By how many buttons he had, he had, buttons he had undone <laughs> on the shirt <laughs> to reveal his luxuriant hairy chest, and then it ultimately culminated in him turning up on stage wearing a sequined turban and no shirt. No shirt at all. It's like all. All the hair is here, girls. Yeah, 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 yeah. Don't Any... go looking up there. <laughs> oh, it was great. Anyway, he gets on stage at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and he's got Elton John, he's got Bob Dylan, he's got the usual great and the good there, and he just goes into this kind of completely deranged monologue about how, you know, I'm prepared to meet Mick Jagger anywhere and he can bring his jumping jack flash and we'll bring our get around and, you know, we'll see who can rock the most. We did 140 <laughs> dates last year. And, he's, you know, the room is just is, curling up with embarrassment. This is uh, hugely embarrassing. I, I, I interviewed Mike Love once and uh, 
Not the nicest guy I've ever interviewed. And uh, and he actually used the phrase, uh, my cousin, the uh, mental patient. I think. Oh! Or something like, oh, something oh. along those lines. It was, uh, you know, and I just oh. thought... Did he have anything oh, to say about really... cousin Dennis? But he has... <laughs> <laughs> but he has successfully, hasn't he, sued Brian Wilson over credit on a load of those yeah. early songs. And when you listen and the to them, ruled in favour of it. Absolutely, and when you listen to those early songs, you think, yeah, only Brian, only Mike Love could have written those lyrics. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so to finish this bit on the Beach Boys, watch one track, one track of the Beach Boys. Just watch one track you love, Andy. God only knows. God only knows. Okay, why? Because it's just possibly you know the greatest love song ever written. And it's got a beautiful arrangement built on that accordion figure. And he, he wrote it and gave it to Carl, because Carl had never sung lead on one of their singles. And he gave Carl this lovely song. No greater love. Yeah. And, oh, and, and, and it's just a, a, you know, a transcendent moment. I think it's better than good vibrations. I think same, same choice for me. Oh, right. Those, okay. yeah. I'm going to throw in one we were playing in the office the other day and noting the fact that it has an opening line with more syllables than any other I can think of in pop music, which is Don't Worry Baby, oh, which starts yeah. with, well, it's well, been, been building up inside of me for, oh, I don't know how long. And if you listen to that, it just flows absolutely perfectly. Another palindrome. And that, with, and, with the melody. Yeah, and yeah. that, of course, was the B-side of I Get Around. Which is what amazing a, to think. What a fantastic... <laughs> that's single, extraordinary. You know. What about you, Mark? Well, those early ones, I get around. Sadly, I helped me Ronda, I remember, very fondly. I still yeah. love that. It's just a brilliant little cyclical harmony part. I, that, again, cause I, partly because I remember them playing when I was a teenager, watching them yeah. in the rain on May the 29th, I think it was, 1972, in a place called Bardney in Yorkshire. Andy and I, who were pretty much exactly the same age, went to all the great festivals. We didn't know each other the then. Link, we were at... We were, we were, Lincolnshire Folk Festival. We were at Wheelie and all that, you know, when we were 16 <laughs> or whatever. But you probably weren't that one. You weren't there, were you? Do you uh, remember no, that? I, I didn't see that one. I, I, oh, the, yeah, I they saw came the on Boys, after the Grease uh, Band, Wishbone Ash, oh, uh, Monty right. Python's Flying Circus, and I think Slade. I saw I saw the Beach Boys at uh, Wembley. Uh, oh, with Elton John. With Elton John and the Eagles. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yes, I saw that. And uh, and they were great. I yeah. mean, you know. Hot day, Andy, wasn't it? Hot it was day, we had no cover at all. We were out there on the pitch. Terrible, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I amused myself with a friend uh, uh, that in those days, at the cup finals, the sides used to come out at one one end, up, yeah. a, up a ramp, didn't they? Oh, yeah, yeah. And so me and a friend, during bits of the show that we weren't very interested in... Um, particularly Elton John doing the whole of his Captain Fantastic and the Brown Dirt Cowboy in sequence, as he did. We would go down this ramp and then wait for the end of a song and then come up the ramp just as the crowd would go... <laughs> so we can pretend we were kind of, you know, <laughs> Billy Bremner oh, and so George sweet. Graham or whatever. Yeah. Taking photos of each other. That's so sweet. Yeah. Very good. Can I, can I uh, just uh, add the... Uh, uh, Possibly the, the least flattering assessment of a fellow musician. Go on. This comes from uh, Brian's uh, autobiography, Wouldn't It Be Nice? Okay. Uh, my own story. And it's about Van Dyke, Van Dyke Parks. And he said, uh, Merely asking what he did provoked any number of answers. He was a piano player, singer, songwriter, the wearer of any number of hats, a functionary, the leper with the most fingers. <laughs> oh, my Lord. 
Well, I'm lost there. I missed him when he was in the in the pod, but you were enormously impressed with oh, him. Oh, terribly impressed. He was uh, absolutely. We had very nice response to that, didn't we, Fraser? We did, he, yeah. uh, no real uh, effort required by either myself or you. I he mean, put he on a talked, show. Did he put on a show? And he left his business card behind, didn't he? What did it say? Frank Parks apologises for his behaviour on, and then a gap for the day. I've got it stuck to my computer. It just cheers me up every day. Great man. The Word Podcast. Fix yourself a drink and it's like being in the pub. So, in the news this week, Stone Roses reform. Are we excited, Andy? Uh, I was never that much of a fan. I, I preferred Ian Brown's solo albums to oh, the Stone Roses you albums. contrary, I, I thought the second coming was That's just talk. terrible. <laughs> really. Good songs on that. Oh, are you kidding? Oh. Breaking Into Heaven. Uh, tears. Oh, no, says good moment. songs with that no. defensive oh, tone. Yeah, no, oh, <laughs> you can't knock the roses. Like Danny Baker always says when people have a go at you know wretched albums, somebody always goes, "Oh, there's one good song, good yeah. song." <laughs> with exactly, exactly you've ever written is that, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so you're excited about oh, Stone very Roses? I adore the Stone Roses. Absolutely, I'm thrilled to bits. And I they really sold uh, allegedly twelve million pounds worth of tickets. In under an hour. See, this is why well, bands I will think come that's back. Probably uh, no, but they, they come back because when they broke up, how much were they paying? How much were people paying for a ticket? Exactly, fifteen yeah, quid. Yeah. Would you like to be back in the days of fifty and sixty pounds? Yes, please. Yeah. I'll come back. And I, I really like the quote from uh, Ian Brown uh, that accompanied the uh, story of this extraordinary sellout uh, ticket to Bonanza, and uh, he was quoted as saying. Uh, uh, the rest of the band and I are planning to spend the rest of the days with our arms in the air, jumping up and down. <laughs> 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 yeah. Why wouldn't you? Why yeah. wouldn't you? <laughs> you? You read the quote about Man City as well. I can't remember who it came from. One of the Stone Roses. It was Manny, Man, I think. Yeah. Manny, Man City supporter. Because he'd said years ago in the interview, you know, there's about as much chance of Man City winning the league as there is the Stone <laughs> Roses oh, coming back brilliant. together. I wish because I'd the likelihood that. is that Man City could well win the Premiership. Oh, I would have put that over uh, and, 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 and they get back together again. But of course, they're not just uh, touring; they're also they've got some new songs. Uh, and there's a great bit in the press conference records. where he said, uh, "Someone says, have you got any new stuff?'" And Rennie goes, "We've got 17 new stuffs." <laughs> Rennie was the star of the show, by the way. Rennie, uh, Rennie, who never used to really say very much, was just absolutely pricelessly. And, w- and what happened to Rennie? Uh, in, in, yeah, we know what happened to Manny. He, he went and joined Primal Scream. We know what happened to, to John Squire. He formed the Seahorses and then got into painting and, and made a pretty bad solo albums. And we know what happened to Ian Brown. What happened to Rennie? I really don't Brilliant know. drummer. Yeah, brilliant, brilliant drummer. Uh, one of those... Yeah, absolute might have been ten years amount of sort of... Uh, um, of early might have been bringing out yeah. family or Could something have been. like yeah. been doing something useful. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, they are... Uh, they're, they're recording... They're going to record some new songs. And here's my question to the committee. All right, come on. Has there ever been a case of a reformed band writing and recording a song worth a damn? Oh. No. <laughs> is that it? Andy Gill, no. short answer, no. no. But who has Crowley House reformed, Little Feet reformed. Exactly. Uh, everybody's Everybody. reformed. Magazine. The magazine have just made a great album. The, the Birds, I've got reformed. The that Magazine album, have made a great not new a good record. album. So go on. I've not heard the new magazine. It's album. very, very good. I mean, is it as good as Song from Under the Floors? I don't know. No, I, no, I've got one for you, actually. I went to see in Wembley Arena in the year 2000 the reformed Steely Dan. 
Ah, and they had a record yeah. called Two Against Nature. Two Against Nature was good. And yeah, one of the tracks right. on that, in fact, anybody listening could do worse to just have a look at your oh, YouTube and get that. It's called Jack of Speed. Oh, it's a fantastic yeah. jazz song. So here's my I think that's almost, almost, well, let's say for the sake of argument, it's as good as anything on that first Well, album. this is very interesting mm. you should say this because I posed this question on Twitter the oh, other right. day. Has any group reformed? Recorded the song, which is good enough to displace any of their best ten songs, ah. right? In the way that Free and as a Bird did by the Beatles. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> in, the way, in the way that Free as a Bird booted Penny Lane into touch. Move over eight days a week. So, and it was interesting that there was a kind of... There was a sort of hesitant silence from uh, from Twitter, from your uh, Twitter nation. People going, "What about?" Oh no, 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 no. Yeah. exactly. <laughs> Maybe the no, 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 no. And the Too only bad. person who actually who who argued, along with you, that Steely Dan were a case. Oh right, go on. Was Dylan Jones of GQ very good? So what, what Dylan Jones you actually for? said, "I can't remember which tracks he said, but he said a couple of their songs, their later songs." Would yeah. displace their best turn. I'm still not sure about that. I think they might get into the best thirty. Maybe, but I think you're yeah, going to try yeah. hard to go you I, know, I thought, displace. I Cousin Dupree do it again or whatever. Album was yes, really good. Yeah, thought, that record's great. The whole yeah, record's good. That was a decent comeback. But it's a rare. But a lot of it's rare. I don't know if age, I don't know if it would you know if it knocks. Can't buy a thrill and countdown to ecstasy. No, I, don't, no, I, don't, I, I think I still listen to all of those albums before I listen to any of. There's just so nature. bound up with the novelty of the sound of the age you are and the age they are at yes. the time. There's so yeah. many things that that, that that inform your opinion. It's very hard to come from later in life and later in life and they're in their sixties yeah. or whatever and you're older and it doesn't matter so much and it's not new anymore. When I first heard Steely Dan, I mean, I just I'd never heard. It. We've had this conversation before about yeah. the Beach Boys, about Good Vibrations, but I just hadn't ever heard anything like it. You know that it was it was. It was it was kind of it was a form of jazz, but, but it's, you know, the, incredible the same, instrumentation. The, the same question could be asked of comebacks in general. Is there ever a comeback that's equivalent to you know? Even you if never it's not just a, I, I don't know. I think there's one. Go, go on, go on, go on. Well, there's two actually. Well, there's Bob, of course. Who's done it several times? Oh, what, oh but he never yeah. split up with himself, yeah, he did, did he? Split. No, I, I don't mean split up. I mean come back. Okay, you know, yes. someone goes out into the wilderness and comes back. Seventy-eight Hells Court in Blackbush in that era, and yeah. I think also Leonard Cohen. I'm your yes, man. that's true. Uh, yes, Up there with yeah. his, with his yes, yeah. better records than his early better, ones, probably. Yeah, probably. In, and in I, I also think Ten New Songs is a fantastic record right. as well. Yes, it is. But there's something about group records. You go back to your Steely Dan. Yeah. And it's interesting, you go and listen to early Seely Dan, the tracks are relatively short, yeah. and they, they just have an energy and an exuberance about them. Mm. And as people get older, the tracks get longer, longer, and get longer to get to their point, as if the person making them, and it kind of relates to what we're saying about Brian Wilson earlier on, they kind of lose that confidence that they had when they were younger. It's, 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 it's their confidence. Yeah. I was in the car the other day and I was playing, I'm going through a bit of a Duke Ellington phase. Right. I was playing this lovely Duke Ellington composition. It has a track on it, uh, which I don't need to tell you which one it is. It's East St. Louis Toodaloo. And when you listen to the original version of that, you know, I can't remember what album Steely Dan did it Pretzel on, Logic. but Pretzel, Pretzel Logic, Logic, they did a version of this, which is absolutely faithful to the original. They actually miss out a 16-bar section in the middle, fact fans, yeah. but they, they, they managed to emulate with wah-wah pedal guitars, the brilliant uh, trumpet and, and sax solos. You know. Bubba Miley's uh, It's amazing. It's so complicated. And they must have looked at that. Partly, A, they love jazz. But B, it's an academic exercise, which is all these rock musicians playing their 
songs in A minor. You know what I mean? Going to F. You know, we're going to do a Duke Ellington arrangement in the studio. Note perfect. It's yeah. fantastic. I was reading. A, oh my I was reading God, a Clive brilliant. James thing, and I've forgotten which book it's from. He's written a book of it's a kind of. Survey of 20th century culture. I can't remember what it is. It's his, his appreciations of all kinds of people. And he's big Duke Ellington fan. He writes about Duke Ellington. That's extraordinary stuff. And Duke Ellington is a kind of classic case of what we're talking about with rock, actually. In that everything he did early was short, to the point, yeah. tuneful. And then when he became the legend Duke Ellington in his 60s and 70s, he couldn't get started unless he was doing something that was vaguely symphonic. Or something that came in many movements. Or something that involved something he'd never used before. And that he didn't go, know how to go back and use the original palette. Everything got very ponderous later on. You know, and he's no less the genius. But there's just something about that kind of early I couldn't form agree more. And also, the, even the titles of the songs had, had a, a very specific point to them. He probably worked from the title first. There's one called It Don't Mean a Thing If It Ain't Got That Swing, which is obviously yeah. the, the, to try to, to, to capitalise on a rather a p- p- start, actually, the whole kind of swing. Um, well, he's playing for dance. And it's just fantastic. And it's just, it's just, it's just a brilliant three-minute composition to just drive people completely insane on a dance floor. You know, this great lyric. And I think, I think uh, also, also the, you're right about uh, Duke Ellington. And I think part, uh, it's the same thing. It, it's the genius thing. Coming back later in, in life, he was all acclaimed Seems. and he knew that yes. he was a genius. I'm supposed yeah. to be a genius. People had been telling him he I'd be, better do something. Yeah. So, I'm who Duke else Ellington. is a genius? I know yeah. Beethoven, he was a genius. Yeah, exactly. I'd better do Where's something that's a little bit yeah. like that. Where's my sandbox? Yeah. <laughs> Where's my treehouse? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, the only yeah. act we can think of who might have done something in their, in their reformed state that, uh, that might. Pass muster alongside the best stuff is Steely Dan. I think so. So if anybody would like to, you know... Um, take issue with that. Take issue with this. <laughs> add in their candidates. Wordmagazine.co.uk is, is the place to do it. Another thing that's been taking place on the site in the last week is is started the conversation in the office, which is very important issue. Who's got, who has had, at any point... The longest hair in rock. These and this the... conversation started off with Mark Ellen nominating somebody whose name will not be revealed no, until not, later I've... on. Yeah. Because in the white envelope, I've written down who Mark Ellen said yeah. has got the longest hair in I rock. I have to say, I'm confident that it was the right answer. <laughs> so I'm well, very Andy surprised. Gill is, Andy Gill is going to open this in a while after we've, after we've gone through the runners and riders. So, Fraser, I think you've... By the way, male. This was male, actually. To be fair, when we decided, oh, yes, we decided we've now got Crystal Gale uh, was disqualified. Crystal Gale, probably Alanis Morissette probably showed the winner. But Fraser has these. got some pictures of the various candidates. Oh, he's, are you passing oh, them to okay. me? Okay. okay, one over there. So, right. oh, we're all looking at the same thing, okay. right? And he's oh, cut out the one. Cut out the one who. Oh my God! So now, oh, that worries me. We're looking at winter typo negative. We'll we'll put these on the website so you can oh. go and look at these well, I, I, Josh oh. Winter of Typo Negative is an extraordinary kind of exploding sofa of hair oh, you know, the hair goes from, out a shot this guy from I Fear Dave Ciccati that's oh, extraordinary it's to his feet isn't it it's to, to his feet, feet. I am he must, are you sure it's not his tensions he must have somebody following him behind him actually carrying his train he's like in a death the, metal you know, band they won't be extensions right? <laughs> it looks like he's wearing a <laughs> really cool room. death metal groups don't do anything it looks like a room divider though. doesn't it as if you could, you could yeah. part that hair and go through and get something from the a pantry beaded curtain. Yeah. <laughs> a beaded curtain Damien Marley is down here <laughs> representing the, the kind of I, the dread fraternity I was going to say I, I would, thought, would have thought it would have been a dread fraternity because let's face it 
it squiggles up as Absolutely. well. Absolutely. Uh, so it's I like telephone cord. If you, t- if you got behind him and you pulled one... Absolutely. Long, <laughs> you would probably find it would you be know. as long as Dave Sicarty's. It's yeah, okay. He would show Sicarty's. And, yeah. uh, and Herman Lee of Dragon Force, oh, he could pretty much tuck it in his belt there, couldn't he? Yeah, he put he it could, in, yeah. his, in his back pocket there. So, uh, anybody else you'd like to suggest, district. Andy? Anybody well, we've no, they, I, I bow to uh, these the, uh, two or three of these. These are extraordinary. A- anybody with particularly remarkable rock hair you'd, you'd think... Yeah, you I, was, I was just thinking of there was some guy in blue cheer that used to have long hair and oh. things like this. And, uh, you mean the, the, uh, from the authors or, of Vincibus Eruptum? Or, or, <laughs> should it not be pronounced Winkabus Eruptum? <laughs> Oh, oh good. I mean, God has all the Latin pronunciation of an ancient heavy metal album. I'm You're listening to the word yet. podcast. <laughs> <laughs> you know you are. Where else are you going to hear this kind of quality banter, people? <laughs> but also, there was a guy in a group called Extreme. Go. I remember, I could Nuno somebody. Nuno Battencourt. Battencourt. I remember oh. meeting him at a Smash Hits uh, Pop Winners Poll party. Where with my pole with his part, whatever it's called, with my two kids when they're eight and ten, and we have a great photograph of us with with Kylie Minogue, and I also have a great picture of us with this guy. But we didn't know who he was. He just, just came over and thought, "Hey, let has got long hair." You know, <laughs> I don't know. So uh, he anyway, Nuno, what was his name? Was he had very long hair? But I've got a. I'll be absolutely honest with you. you know, when <laughs> Andy's going to have to open this envelope, but I'm feeling less confident because this guy, although I could only find a picture of him. In my defence, that was dirty. he had hair almost yeah. from his waist, but it appeared there was going to be lots more. It wasn't I'm handing the envelope now to Andy Girl. You yeah. can open what this is the, the name of the person there. Well, when that I was Mark a kid, this was the longest hair in rock. The longest hair in rock. Legend. <laughs> Here we go, Andy. You want to read this? And the winner is <laughs> Artemis Pyle of Leonard Skinner. Artemis you know Pyle. it. <laughs> you know it, people. <laughs> Artemis Pyle. Anybody listening, if you're near a computer, go and have a look. Just Google Images. Check it out. I don't oh, think my God, he had long hair. As did Alice Cooper's backing band, actually, in about 1974. There we are. You see, I don't think anybody I've has... i to a bit, I've lost this. Yeah, I think nowadays long hair is longer, yes. isn't it, Fraser? This is yeah. like if you were tattooed in the 70s, you don't have as many tattoos this as you is do. It? Oh, okay. This is it! The same applies to everything. Well, Dave... Long hair then is not as long as long hair now. Here is one. Yeah. There's no question yeah, about right. that. Talking about tattoos, you must see, if you get the word newsletter, that fantastic uh, Fraser's posted a, a wonderful trailer to a, a new documentary called what, Fraser? I can't remember. Is Animal it? Phobia. Is that, is that the one? No, I'm talking about the one about punks now in <laughs> oh, their yes. 40s and 50s. Oh, the, the other F word. Oh, what's, the, the, what's it called? The other F word. The other F word. And this is a wonderful documentary made about guys who used to be really hardcore punks back in the day and are now in their 40s and 50s and raising mm. children. And it's about the challenges of raising children when you've got kind of rings through your nose and, you know... And a, a uh, spider web tattoo But then they're absolutely. all completely covered. And there, there's one lovely bit. I can't remember who he is now. Some guy's got a little kid, he's, you know, in a carry cot or something and he can't sleep at night. And there they are being cradled in these arms that are covered in uh, transvestites. Am I right? Does he have two transvestites on his arm? And at one point he says, it's kind of hard to explain that to the kids, but, you know, there you go. I really want to see that film. Oh, it's brilliant. I, it looks really funny. interesting. Yeah. So... Transvestites, of course. <laughs> what else? So we should post these. Uh, we should post these extraordinary long hairs. Did we mention David Allen Coe? The country singer, rhinestone cowboy. Oh, really? Isn't he the rhinestone cowboy? Well, did he write Rhinestone Cowboy? No. I no. seem to remember Jimmy the name Webb, David Allen Coe, or is he the legendary Stardust Cowboy? I don't think no, so. That's the one different. <laughs> oh, I'm he did Willie Wail on and Me. It was his big country touch. Oh, right. And now he does very kind of rabid, 
right wing. Yes. Kind of nasty piece of work. Right? Like <laughs> yeah. But extraordinary, yeah. extraordinary yeah. hair. Uh, what, what else have we got? And, oh, yes, a, a various posts from the website, which I'm just going to read one, actually, which is my favourite cool. from, from the last few weeks. Um, it's somebody, somebody talking about... Uh, I can't remember how this thread came along. Uh, it's the most expensive gig you've ever been to. Most expensive gig uh, you've ever been to. What's the most expensive gig you've uh, ever been to? There's a couple. Uh, there was the Led Zepp uh, reunion. Right. Uh, that, which that. was about 135 including the ticket fee and so on. Right, right. And uh, But I think... Oh, maybe... Was that more expensive or less expensive than the cream reunion? I was in the cream as well. I was both of those. Yeah, yeah cream was 125 quid. Yeah. We've done this on podcasts passing, but I remember the moment when you, there was a song you didn't like. It was like being in a black cab. Because I'd worked out that, <laughs> that if you went into a black cab and said, keep driving for, for two hours, ten minutes, which is how long the concert was, the bill at the end would be 125 quid. Yeah. So when they started playing uh, Press Rad and Walk On, I was yeah, like, exactly. that's 15 quid gone. I'm not enjoying this. <laughs> Although, you know, I must admit, I preferred that cream to the early days. So did I. I thought they were better. much better no, players. Much better group. They were much, yeah. Um, Far better group. And, I, and where, whereas Toad in the early days was, I'm sorry, I'm not playing that. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's 17 minutes of my life that I don't want to give up. <laughs> yeah. To actually see Ginger Baker yeah. playing five different, hitting five different things in less than a second. Yeah. It's quite extraordinary. At the age of 68 or yeah, whatever it was. Uh, right? To actually yeah. make these kind of strange yeah. arm movements that, Produced this many, uh, this many. Actually, you're talking about gigs sounds. that were less than harmonious. There's other thing that was posted in, in the in the email newsletter this week is the links the extraordinary story of of Neil Finn, Ryan Adams, and Janice Ian doing uh, the songwriter circle circle thing. Oh right, with the BBC which I'm very sad I didn't go to. I, should, I was supposed to go, I couldn't go. And uh, you know these things the BBC do where they get three songwriters. It was broadcast very recently. It was broadcast it was, very yeah. recently. I think what you did was heavily, heavily edited. Is what <laughs> I don't know about heavily edited, but uh, you've been to one of these. No, you I've went been to one... several. Yeah, oh, okay. I like them very and much. so they, you've got three guys, you know, songwriters sitting on stools, you know, and, and they talk about songwriting and they, they play their best known tunes, and then they're supposed to do a certain amount together. Well, apparently, they uh, they were supposed to do Neil Finn's. Uh, I can't remember which song it was. I can't remember. Uh, and they're supposed to do it together. And they had to re-record it or something because there was something wrong with the sound. And and Ryan Adams made his displeasure absolutely plain. Uh, and I think he was kind of texting and so forth while he was supposed to be joining in with That's the very song. disrespectful. And there was... <laughs> really? There was, yeah. you know, rude. There was, a re- you know, harsh words were exchanged on on stage. And so there's been there's been a huge follow-up to it on an Australian website which into which loads of people like Ryan Adams and Janice Ian have, uh, have weighed in I'm with really? their... Yeah, with a five penneth, you know, because Excellent. nowadays with YouTube and everything, you know, everything follows you around forever yeah, more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So do do enjoy yourself on that on that particular tale. Yeah, anyway, good. the story what, going back the to, to the, the, the this is about somebody going to see Tom Waits uh, and was actually got tickets through through uh, the late Rob Partridge. Yeah. You know, so he was in the kind of privileged bit. We arrived to find our row of seats. This is from Pocket oh, Calculator. We arrived to find our row of seats somewhat empty. Bloody journos, I said. Around us were several famous faces, Tom York, Damon Albarn and the like. Just before the show, the door that leads backstage from the auditorium opened and out walked Johnny Depp, Vanessa Parody, Tim Burton and um, Helen Bonham Carter, Jerry Hall and a few others, he says, you know. Says they trooped up and joined us on our row. Depp sitting next to my by now trembling wife. 
This is the best bit. Evening, ma'am, he said, and doffed his tip for. She came, I think. Oh, no! 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 Oh, very that was very good. Very good. Very funny. We can't leave without Fraser, just briefly. Fraser's been away oh. for, for a month at the World Cup and visiting long-lost relations down in New Zealand. And... Um, and we haven't had a full catch-up, really, for no, since you've been back. So it's, it's been very, very busy. Went to loads of games and so forth. Went to the final. Yep. Saw Wales. Yeah. <laughs> I think, don't think Fraser enjoyed the final quite as much as we enjoyed it at home. You oh, know, we, it was we, terrifying. Absolutely <laughs> terrifying. We were sitting at home going, oh, this is nice. We don't care who wins, but it's a fantastic I've game. I've never experienced an atmosphere of fear like that really? before. Yeah. Really? So what are the things at the World Cup that we miss because we only watched it on telly? Well, I think what you, you don't get an idea of is absolutely how wrapped up New Zealand is in the whole tournament and how important it is and uh, the fact that the papers will be filled with it from beginning to end but it's never about the personalities of the players or whatever they'll be doing in the part time which is what you get here it's all about rugby about the game and you had things like when Dan Carter was injured the nation mourned they had a I saw a TV special where they'd got a grief counsellor on no. to, to help the nation <laughs> no. over, over to hold injury. the nation's oh that's hand. brilliant and the first thing he said was uh, I'm not usually here till later in the tournament <laughs> oh. no, no. so he's obviously does this thing regularly where he helps everyone through the uh, the terrible state oh, of the old and in the end that didn't matter did it, it didn't fourth, matter fourth yeah. but also you were saying yesterday that, that, that it was quite controlled that, 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 that it was only when they got to the semi-final it was, there, that the New Zealanders Quiet up until the semi-final. They were worried they might go out. I think so. Probably, I think yeah. there was a huge fear of losing to Australia because they'd lost them recently in the Tri Nations, mm. and uh, the Australians kicked off, and Quade Cooper put the ball into touch, and Eden Park erupted. And <laughs> I've it, never it, seen anything like it. It was extraordinary, and it, and that was the turning point. So this is for those who don't follow the game very closely. Quade Cooper is a is a New Zealander, he's a New Zealander, yeah, who plays for Australia, yeah. which is just you know he, he's the, the enmity between New Zealanders and Australians yeah. is something we just makes, cannot makes relations between Canadians and Americans seem quite cordial. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And so the direction of the TV coverage of this was basically one camera was on Quade Cooper all the way through, just <laughs> praying that he screwed up, wasn't yeah. it? And which he did quite he a few screwed, times. Yeah, and you can see it's always my favourite sight on. Uh, sporting on TV, you can always see how people blush. You know, people do something wrong on a sporting field with the cameras on them. They are blushing. They're co- yeah. colouring up because they know they've got that level of attention. Yeah, right? yeah. It was extraordinary. And, of course, you were there at the final for the, the hacker business uh, where the French actually yes. approached the... As they should the be allowed to do, I think. Quite It's a challenge. Right. Yeah. I mean, the IRB say it's disrespectful oh, to challenge the hacker. It's nothing to do with disrespect. It's about them I thought they were going to break into their own song. They don't want people scrapping before the kickoff. That's no, why they don't no. let people... Because they linked arms and stood up in front of them. And I, I thought they were going to get to no, they, people almost... bois by Plastic Bertrand. No, it's not French. <laughs> it's Belgian. Belgian, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> the thing that got me, the clever thing about their timing was they didn't move forward until New Zealanders were halfway through the hacker. Yeah. yeah. And he must have slightly thrown them. Yeah. You, you know, you, you're, about, you're leaping in the air. You're kind of doing throat-slitting gestures. And suddenly Johnny Frenchman started moving. Yeah. What's he about to yeah. do? He must slightly throw you. Johnny French is lit a high tar cigarette. Takes out on you. What do you think the, uh, the 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 England team would have used as their uh, if they were to respond with a well? They famously, well, I don't know about a musical. Famously, years ago, was it Richard Cockrell actually approached Norm Hyatt, Norm, yes. Norm Hewitt, didn't he, and went nose to nose with him? 
which is probably going a little far. Yeah. I think they could they could do uh, who do you think you're kidding, Mister? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Hersham boys, the floral dance, or the, the Archers uh, theme tune. That'd be good. Very good. That's what Billy Connolly suggested ought to be the national anthem, didn't he? And you know, ever since he said that, I, every time I hear the Archers theme tune, I think. That is a really good anthem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's not too late for the Olympics, is it? You've been listening to the Word Podcast. If you've enjoyed it, we would really appreciate it if you would take the time to rate it on iTunes. You can find many more Word Podcasts at wordpodcast.co.uk. And if you'd like to come to one of our Word in Your Ear live events, then you can find details at wiyelondon.com or just Google us. Thanks for listening.